Good morning, everybody. A bit nippy this morning, so I thought we'd start with singing first. But after, Lauren and Zemeika. The flame is kindled. Our chalice reminds us of what we share. Our chalice focuses our thoughts. Our chalice lights our path. This is our chalice. Thank you. We're going to sing hymn number 14 in your purple books. Bring many names. It's one of those hymns with lots and lots of verses. (laughs) However, I would suggest... If you find yourself running out of puff, why don't you listen to everybody else for a while? <laughs> so we're singing him at number 40, Bring Many Names. Soon enough. So, a story. 
Um, it's, I've adapted it from a story by Mary Ann Moore. Pretty much the same story, just missed out the bits I didn't like. <laughs> so once upon a time, God said, I want to play a game. And because God is God, as soon as he said those words, his mates were there to play with. Would that life was that easy, eh? When God saw all his mates gathered around, he said, what, what should we play? Let's play something. And his mate said, oh, I don't know, what do you fancy? Had a look at the board games. Top trumped. No, no, no. And God said, oh, I know, let's play hide and seek. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Do you, do you like playing hide and seek? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I like playing hide and seek. I like playing hide and seek best when you get to hide and the person looking for you is not that great at looking, so you can have a nap. That's my best sort of hide and seek. <laughs> She's grown out of that now. <laughs> so, the friends decided they were going to play hide and seek. Another mother has now hysterics. One of his mates went running off outside. And he decided to look for God close on the earth. And he came to a meadow. And he looked and he saw all this beautiful grass. You know when you get really like deep into it and you really look and there's all the insects. and It's all it's pretty cool, isn't it? You don't know that when you look like with a microscope or a... What do you call them things? Magnifying glass. Yeah, and you look and you can see all the... It's pretty cool, isn't it? Anyway, he thought it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Something special and amazing and wonderful about all this detail, this beautiful green growing grass. And he jumped up and called out, I found God! God is green and growing! I found God in the grass. Now of course, because he found God pretty quickly, a bit of a boring rest of the day for him, but never mind, other friends went, were still off hunting and searching for God. And another one of God's friends that evening decided to look for God in the night. And as the night fell... She noticed the sun going down in all its splendour. She heard all the noises stop. She saw the houses' lights go out. As it got darker and more peaceful, the night wrapped itself around her. She listened very hard. And then she realised there was something amazing and special about the night. Something really amazing. Something so stunning. And she realised... I found God. God is dark and peaceful. I found God in the night. Her third friend looked on the earth and felt the mystery of the grass. Yes, pretty impressive. Watched the night come on. Felt the mystery of the darkness and the stars. Yeah, pretty amazing. But she thought to herself, hmm, these mysteries are, they're very special, they're very amazing, and they are very wonderful. But when she finally got back to home base, she said, Well, I found wonderful mysteries, but I'm not sure I found God. A fourth friend decided to have a look where there were lots of people. Decided to have a look where there were lots of people. And joined a group of people coming home from work. And went with them to the shops. And they bought all their food for tea. And they were walking home. And somebody was asked by a stranger, I'm really hungry. Will you, will you help me? I'm really hungry. And the person shared their food with them. And the friend said, that's it. There is something special and amazing and wonderful about these people. I found God. God is love and sharing. I found God in people who care for each other. Finally, two more of God's friends, a boy and a girl, decided to look for God together. And they were wandering around a house, lots of rooms, lots of things to look at. And they came to one room and there was a mirror. A great big beautiful mirror. And they looked in the mirror and they thought they'd look for God in the mirror. They looked for God in the mirror. And what did they find in the mirror? Go on, I state the obvious. Sorry to patronise you. What did they find in the mirror? God. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> male 
member of the children. <laughs> but what can they They could see themselves. They saw them. They saw their reflection. Oh, oh too deep, too quick. <laughs> they saw their reflection in the mirror. And they realised there was something special and amazing and wonderful and beautiful about themselves. And they called out, we found God. God's in us. So you were right, but you know, kind of there was a stage missing. We found God. God is in us. God is in us. And they all got back to home base and thought there was all these different things that people had to say, places they'd found God. And God said, well, some of you found me. Some of you weren't so sure, and others probably still looking. And that's okay. That's just okay. But let's keep playing the game. That's the story of playing hide and seek with God. You could see if you can get Jim and Peter to let you play hide and seek today. I reckon hide and seek's quite good around here. Uh, but I bet they've got better things planned than hide and seek, haven't they? Do you reckon? So while you go off with Jim and Peter to have some adventures, we're going to sing. about God, thinking about speaking about God. Yesterday we explored some different ideas, didn't we, about the nature of God, about some of the key issues about the relationship between religion and God, the mystical and the rational, our history and our current experience and practice, all sorts of things. And some of you came uh, to the conversations on the theme talk, Uh, lots of you actually came to the conversations on the theme talk. And we noted a whole heap of interesting ideas from things people said. In fact, I've now realised that I made a bit of an error. Because I thought on my printed piece of paper, I'd just sort of scribbled little notes of the things that I'd picked up from what people said. And I now realise I can't actually see it terribly well. <laughs> so what were some of the things that people picked up in the conversations? One of the things was actually that some people just find it really hard to hear the word God. They just find it really hard to hear the word God. And one of... The things that, um, one of the responses to that, which I thought was really useful, was um, the idea that we have God with an asterisk, that there's lots of footnotes, that when we use the word God, we can hear whichever word we need to hear. We can replace it. We We don't have to feel that that's the word we hear. It's the word that's being used, but we can replace it. But the limitations of language were one of the things that we came round and round to. The universality, or otherwise, of experience of the transcendent, how experience might be interpreted, how it might be acted upon. Some ideas from David's uh, brilliant theme talk, which people picked up on, particularly the idea about waiting silence, whether that was active and passive. By spirituality, people like that phrase. And warned David it was going to get pinched frequently. (laughs) The idea of the intuitive sense of God, knowing without explanation. And people ask some really challenging questions from their own experience. And this is, I think, this is really important. People speak from their own experience. Are we making up a story to justify things to ourselves? To justify ourselves and our experience? And how do we deal when that story is challenged? When that story is actually fundamentally pulled apart. And there were lots of interesting philosophical questions. Bananas came up. (laughs) 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 The person who said that probably doesn't even remember, but I just thought fantastic. We're talking about God, but bananas comes up. (laughs) And so I was thinking, even if we could find the right word, even if there was one right word, would it help? God challenges people so much, but is there a different word that would somehow be better? And does it matter? You know, those sorts of questions I'm wrestling with. And I'll remind you again that I think in terms of questions rather than answers. So today, Yvonne, 
is going to take us on a slightly different journey through speaking of God. Yvonne, I'm sure many of you have met Yvonne, you've certainly seen her doing things this, this uh, week. Uh, Yvonne is a Unitarian who's explored in some detail a lot of theology and studies related to Unitarianism, paganism, mythology, gender and interfaith. And as one of our five speakers, she brings a, a particular set of knowledge, um, some about the gendered nature of God, but also, and I hope she might, might mind me saying this, she demonstrates through her own religious journey how theological language, how talking about God can be defining rather than merely coincidental. And I think that's important. So I'm going to hand over to Yvonne. Well, um, <clears throat> some of you know that uh, yesterday, well, I think it was like the first day I was here, I actually over, sort of mis-overheard in the dinner queue um, somebody saying, now, I'm sure this isn't what they said, but this is what I misoverheard. God is a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we decided that it was, it was round, um, and uh, it, it comes in many flavours. Uh, you can put whatever toppings you like, um, and also um, it's nourishing. So, yeah. um, and uh, Sheila thinks that I should put that in the Unitarian. So. <laughs> well... Um, I just realised that I've got my wrong bit of notes here. Um, I, um, I was really interested in the discussion we had yesterday because people were talking about the God beyond God. And I thought, well, actually, for me, it's the God beyond gods, plural. Um, because there are so many images that you can have of the divine, um, gods and goddesses from all around the world, um, some of which I've explored. Um, <coughs> But for me, ultimately, they are just archetypes, and there's something beyond that. There's an experience beyond those archetypes. Um, and no matter how you form a relationship with these archetypes, as if they are real people, but if you really take them as real people, then you have the same sort of problems that you get if you take, uh, if you imagine God as a person, an anthropomorphic person. So, so that's been part of my journey. But um, I'll start off with when um, I was young and and just coming. I was brought up um, in the Plymouth Brethren until the age of nine. And then I, um, my parents went to a sort of very charismatic sort of, you know, hands in the air, speaking in tongues type of thing. Um, and then I sort of settled on the United Reformed Church for a while. And I left the United Reformed Church because all my, uh, my best friend came out as gay. And all my Christian friends said, oh, well, you know, um, sorry, but he can't actually do anything because um, God won't like him if he does. So I thought, well, I, my friend is more important to me than your God, so bye. Um, and for me, that was a really defining moment in my spirituality. And the thing that, and also, you know, at the time, my own ex explorations of sexuality and being alive um, and, and my doubts about the idea that you can, there's a, you can only get saved through Christianity sort of led me off in led me off into atheism and then subsequently into paganism. So um, I don't identify as a pagan anymore because I find my spirituality is broader than that. Um, but um, I think that um, I, I still find God in nature, whatever God is. So. Um, the, um, I also found that the idea of an omnipotent deity was really difficult for me when um, confronted with things like the Holocaust and other, um, you know, large-scale tragedies. Um, how could, you know, I, I remember thinking, well, how could a god, an omnipotent god, allow that to happen? Um, <clears throat> so um, at that time, I became an atheist. Um, concluding that good and evil really reside in the human in the human heart and aren't beings in their own right. Then I began to read the books of the mythographer Joseph Campbell, and I began to think that the Greek and Norse myths that I'd enjoyed from an early age had some reality as archetypes in the collective unconscious, or perhaps they were even the emergent consciousness of places and natural phenomena, trees, rocks, weather, and so on whose personality was shaped by human interactions with them, just as we shape each other's personalities by our interactions with each other. 
I also became interested in the goddess, the divine feminine. Now, the goddess isn't just um, Jehovah in a skirt. She's rather different from traditional views of God. Um, well, I think it would be quite good if we made Jehovah wear a skirt, but there you are. Um, so, in all the traditions where the goddess is present or semi-present, um, she's regarded as being imminent in the world. She's not transcendent and out there. Um, I mean, I now understand the word transcendent a bit differently, but uh, at the time I understood it as meaning something beyond the universe and not, not really involved. Um, but I think, you know, the, the more fully rounded view of God is both transcendent and imminent. But, but she's specifically imminent. She is, she is present, she is here. Um, you know, she is the earth and the sky and the stars. <coughs> she's not just seen as an aspect of a male God, but she's seen as a being in her own right. Um, some theists have seen her as an emanation from the divine source, which has no gender. In Judaism, she's seen as the Shekinah, the divine presence. Um, now, obviously, if you, um, if you end up with two, if you end up with a, a supreme god and a supreme goddess, um, you've then got a problem um, because they're potentially a heterosexual couple, and that excludes an awful lot of people, including me. So, um, I, I'm, I have difficulty with that, but I think it's useful. So I think it's a corrective to that is to think of the divine beyond gender, and I think that's really important. Um, but I, um, yeah, I think it's good to, to affirm those female aspects as well. She's associated with nature and the wilderness, and she's often seen as a mother who gives birth to the universe, and there's some beautiful stories about that. Um, but she also is the universe itself. Um, she's not just um, <clears throat> the mother, but she's also the wise crone and the wild maiden. So she's not just, she's all aspects of, of the female. She is the embodiment of compassion and wisdom, love and sexuality. Now, there's a problem there, of course, because if we sort of associate these qualities with the female, then the poor old men get excluded and they can have love, compassion, wisdom and sexuality too. Um, but still <laughs> there you go chaps yeah. um, now one of the most interesting aspects I think is that um, she's not about imposing laws from on high you know not sort of uh, here are your commandments go off and obey them um, she's about the emergence of harmony from the grassroots from below and um, I also think you know, she, we must we must move away from the image of the Virgin Mother, um, beautiful though that is in many ways. Um, I think it's, it can be an image which is very damaging to women by um, holding out sort of an unattainable ideal and denying the validity of sexual pleasure. And um, the worship of the goddess includes sacred sexuality. Um, and after I'd, I'd got really into the goddess, I was really, yeah, this is great. You know, affirming the female divine, that's fantastic. Um, and then I started sort of thinking, yeah, well, actually, this polytheism is quite good because you've got, then you've got multiple aspects of, uh, you know, you can have um, the divine in each one of us. Um, you can have multiple different gods and goddesses that you can identify with. Um, but the problem with that is if you, you can actually over-identify with gods and goddesses, you can, um, you know, for instance, in Voudin, um, which I've never practiced and don't intend to. Um, uh, it, there's, there's a thing where you, you become associated with one particular, particular loi uh, or deity, and that deity is always the one that rides you. Um, and I've, I think that people become over-identified with those qualities. Um, and uh, so that can be... Whereas actually what you're trying to do is become more rounded and, and not identify with one particular archetype. Um, so after many years, I began to suspect that there was something beyond the gods and goddesses, um, an underlying energy or an organising principle, perhaps. That which mystics call the void, the Tao, the pleroma, that's a Gnostic term in sort of the fullness, god, spirit, goddess, many other names, and I realised that for my personal taste, the gods and goddesses of paganism were too gendered, too human, too particular. 
They are facets of the great all, but not the totality, not the totality of it. And I think you know some pagans have actually started to behave as if these gods and goddesses have an objective reality beyond being human projections on the sort of fleeting instances of personality that emerge from our interactions with nature, with, with the great all. To my mind, saying that Odin, Freya or Thor told you to do something is just as dangerous as saying that Jesus or Yahweh or Allah told you to do something. It's, it isn't, you know, it's the idea that you have been given a divine mandate to go out and do whatever it is, um, so that's okay and it transcends normal normal ideas of morality uh, no, <laughs> not good um, it bypasses common sense reason and conscience and enables people to do things they couldn't otherwise justify so I started to look for the divine beyond all personal and individual forms, the ineffable and unknowable um, Karen Armstrong has written beautifully of the God beyond God and um, she writes that um, the mystics of throughout the centuries have um, have explored the God beyond God, the, the darkness, the silence, and the light within the darkness. And for me, um, darkness contains light, because you always have the starlight in the darkness, and the light contains the darkness, because when you gaze into the brightness of the sun, the, you, your eyes are darkened by the dazzlement of it, aren't they? So um, it's a bit like the yin and yang that, but that light and darkness contain each other and are joined together. Um, because for me, darkness is a really positive thing and, and it distresses me when people talk about darkness and, in, and equate it with evil. Um, I don't know how we... We need a metaphor for evil, I guess, but I wish, it was, I wish people wouldn't use darkness as a metaphor for evil. For me, darkness is beautiful, it is radiant, it is... Um, you know, it's part of the cycle of life and death. Death isn't evil. It's just part of the great cycle. Um, as that lovely hymn, Let It Be a Dance, says, you know, it's, um, um, it's all part of a, a cycle. Um, one person dies, another person is born. So I think, um, you know, let's not use darkness as a metaphor for evil, please. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think um, that what, whatever the divine is, um, because for me it's not a person, and it doesn't have an objective existence. It may be all existence, or it may be the ground of all being. Um, so for me it's really an experience that I'm having, rather than something that... So it is, it's my sense of connecting with what's out there, but it's not, it's not a tangible person. Um, and I think and there's a wonderful saying in Buddhism that the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon um, so all our images that point to the divine are not the divine and I, th I think everyone's been saying that really um, so my experience of the divine which is in the darkness and the night might be different to your experience of the divine which is about people connecting with people and actually, I experienced the divine in that too. Um, so I think Mel's story actually illustrates that really well. Um, I also think that as finite and localised beings, we can't know the infinite and non-local intimately. We can only catch glimpses of it in moments of mystical awareness of the great all, the light that shines through time, the sense of the numinous at the heart of everything. Um, and it's interesting this word numinous because um, it was a guy called Rudolf Otto who came up with it um, to describe that which religion points to um, and um, I forget what numen actually means but I think it meant something like the spirit of place in Roman paganism um, so he deliberately didn't define what the numinous was it was just that which religion points to and I think that's quite a helpful term to describe what we're talking about um, and another thing I think that's um, an interesting idea is that you know, we are finite and local there's nothing wrong with that you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up for being finite and local um, and God is infinite, the divine whatever it is, the numinous is infinite and non-local so 
we need to connect with that sense of infinite and non-local. But perhaps whatever it is needs to connect with our finite, you know, the universe needs our finite local perspective. It needs us to be um, aware of it. Um, because kind of the fact that there's somebody who's aware of all the beauty adds meaning to the beauty. And that, you know, that's the thing, that's almost like the meaning of life for me, that we are aware of the beauty around us um, and in each other. So mystics throughout the centuries, uh, mostly in the West, as was pointed out yesterday, have characterised the unknowable and ungraspable nature of the infinite as the darkness of God, the impenetrability of the void, the cloud of unknowing. Carl Jung, in his mystical um, text, Seven Sermons to the Dead, which was inspired when he, um, he had a, actually a psychotic episode um, where he had a series of hallucinations, um, he said that a person who tries to understand the pleroma, the source of all things, will go mad. And um, Lao Tzu said that the Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. Um, and I think that's back to finger pointing at the moon, not the moon. In her fascinating book, A History of God, Karen Armstrong explores the various different ideas of God that have prevailed throughout the history of monotheism. The remote God of the philosophers, who is the source of all existence. The God of the mystics, which is the ground of all being and the experience of love. And the scary God of the fundamentalists, which is a being that sits in judgment over the universe. It is this judgmental God of the fanatics that has given rise to much of Western atheism, which has quite rightly rejected this tyrannical concept. But it's not the only concept of the divine and could be replaced with some of the more nuanced views from other traditions. Armstrong shows how throughout history the God of the mystics is the only concept that has genuinely sustained people through persecution and exile, heartbreak and loss, and so it kept re-emerging even when the literalists tried to stamp out mysticism. And uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful story which um, Sue Woolley um, found, which is that right in the heart of Auschwitz, um, was it Dachau, Sue? Um, it was Auschwitz, yeah. Right in the heart of Auschwitz, the, um, the Jews had a day off, and they decided they would put God on trial for, for the suffering that they were experiencing. And uh, so the question in the trial was, well, does God exist or not? And they got to the end of the day and decided, well, no, we are suffering too much. Clearly, God doesn't exist. And then one old man said, right, I'm off then. Um, time for evening prayer. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that's a wonderful, you know, that if somebody said to me once at work, you know, what's this prayer for? Then what's that all about? Why does anyone do that? Um, it doesn't benefit God, does it? And I said... No, it benefits you. <laughs> but still, there's this presence of absence. There's, or an absence of presence. There's, um, which is a phrase I got from Andrew Brown, who um, writes very luminously on these, on this very difficult to grasp concept. Um, and um, I really like this, which I got from a friend, a friend that I met recently, Joe Anderson. Um, in Greek philosophy and in Buddhist philosophy, there's, a, there's the concept of the tetralemma. So it's like a dilemma, but it's fourfold. It can be expressed as a fourfold paradox. It is. It is not. It both is and is not. And it neither is nor is not. So it is, it isn't. It both is and is not. It's, it neither is nor is not. Um, in Buddhism, this par paradox is called the katuskoti, uh, and it's eightfold. Now, I, I didn't understand the... I had enough trouble with the fourfold thing. I just didn't understand the eightfold thing. But, um, but this eightfold version of the paradox can be expressed in the wheel with eight spokes. That's one of the symbols of Buddhism. 
<clears throat> and the central hole for the spoke is where the inexpressible truth lies. So my friend Jo Anderson says, um, she's actually writing her entire PhD thesis about this one thing, um, she says, it's impossible to say anything positive within the tetralemma. All you can do is say everything your idea isn't, or what you don't believe or think. And the gap in the middle with no words is the illustration or allusion to what it is, which is, of course, non-conceptual and inexpressible, but can be demonstrated by its omission. So there's nothing you can say about the unknowable, ungraspable void. As soon as you say anything, you have only described one thing, not the totality. The modern Protestant theologian Paul Tillich characterised the divine as being itself, or the ground of all being, and sometimes referred to it as whatever is of ultimate concern. And I think this concept is pretty popular in, amongst Unitarians. Um, so we are beings, we are finite beings, but the infinite, um, whatever it is, is not a being, but being, existence itself. Um, Tillich said, along with many earlier thinkers, such as Duns Scotus Eriogena, that the divine does not exist because being does not exist. Um, we experience love, but love doesn't exist as a thing. Um, love is an experience, um, a mode of relation. So perhaps it's, you know, it's actually helpful to say, well, God is, yes, God is love. Love doesn't exist, but we can experience it. God doesn't exist, but we can experience it. Um, as discussed earlier, insert asterisk when referring to God. Choose your term of preference. Um, so the Buddhists point out that there is no such state as being. There is only becoming, because everything changes. Our language, English, encourages us to think about things and people as discrete steady-state objects acted on by external forces. Some other languages, especially indigenous American languages, don't have this peculiarity and refer to everything as a process. So, for example, a tree might not be called a tree, but a growing. Thus, the divine, the void, the Tao, is not a person, nor even being itself, but a process, the unfolding of the universe. We can experience a sense of the divine because the silence and the sense of the void lies deep within our psyches. Mystics throughout the centuries have reached this inner void through contemplative prayer and meditation. They moved away from the sense of the divine as a person towards a sense of the vast interior silence before which all words are inadequate. Martin Laird's excellent book, Into the Silent Land, charts this inward journey and although it's couched in terms of mainstream orthodox Christianity, it's well worth reading for its psychological and spiritual insights. Um, I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's wonderful. Um, Into the Silent Land is the name of the book by Martin Laird. Um, he talks about three thresholds within us that we have to overcome in order to um, achieve that inner silence. So... The divine, the whatever it is, the void, the Tao, the pleroma, the silence, the process, the becoming, is both male and female, and yet it has no gender. It does not exist, and yet it is all that is. It contains both darkness and light, but it is neither and both. It has both wisdom and ignorance, but it is neither and both. It can be found everywhere and nowhere, and it can be experienced in all religions and in individual spirituality. I've experienced it, but whatever it is. And I'm not saying that each of these traditions I'm going to mention is the same or anything like that. I'm just saying that I've had a similar experience in each of these places. Okay, So um, I've experienced it in Wiccan circles, Unitarian services, a Sufi vicar, an Anglican ashing service in the middle of a labyrinth walk, 
both here and at GA, and meditating and walking in nature. It's love in all its glorious diversity, and it wells up from the depths of the psyche available to all. It's the sum of all experience, and yet remains unknowing. It's powerful and yielding, full of paradox. Just when you think you have grasped some aspect of it, it reveals new depths of mystery and unfathomability. Can we call this mystery God? It seems to me to be a rather inadequate word for the mystery of existence, the spirit of life, the experience of love, the wisdom of the ages. It's also a gendered word, and I want a word that includes the goddess too. This is why I tend to refer to the divine or the Tao. I rather like this description of the divine by Mark Morford, who's a um, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. He writes, it's an unfathomable river of cosmic energy to be supped from like liquid light, while you still take complete responsibility for your own life and choices. God is simply the idea of universal love and compassion, coursing through all things at all times everywhere. God is eternal divine consciousness, this grand and unquenchable, vibrating pulse of existence spanning all spheres and organisms and dimensions for all time everywhere. Wow, that's big. <laughs> we cannot grasp the essentially fluid nature of the divine. We can only drink with gratitude from the inexhaustible source. We can only let go and float in the sea of faith. I used to have terrible trouble with the word faith because I always thought it meant blind faith or sort of believing in stupid stuff. Um, but this is a wonderful definition of faith by Alan Watts, who, um, who was a, an, ang um, an Episcopalian who became a Zen Buddhist and then went back to Episcopalianism again. So anyway, he writes, Faith is a state of openness or trust. To have faith is to trust yourself to the water. When you swim, you don't grab hold of the water, because if you do, you will sink and drown. Instead, you relax and float. And the attitude of faith is the very opposite of clinging to belief, of holding on. In other words, a person who is fanatic in matters of religion and clings to certain ideas about the nature of God and the universe becomes a person who has no faith at all. Instead, they are holding tight but the attitude of faith is to let go and become open to truth, whatever it might turn out to be. We can only experience the void in everything. It doesn't exist, but it is in everything. The kingdom of heaven is all around us, if only we could see it. As William Blake wrote, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. some time now for you to stand up, shake it all about, uh, <laughs> does it to you. Uh, but to turn around and have a conversation with somebody else about what you've heard, to maybe uh, share some thoughts, share some ideas, or if it's what you need to sit in silence and to reflect for yourself. So I'll have ten minutes. very many thanks to Yvonne obviously stimulated lots of thoughts and ideas and questions and it was great to see so much conversation happening um, 
So what, what was what leapt out for me? I'm sure, for my, as for most of you, um, you, you, the word paradox. That's the word that leapt out for me. The word paradox. And it, uh, David brought out the word, the, you know, the issue of paradox, theme of paradox, and it, it was there again in Yvonne's talk this morning. Uh, both in explicitly, explicitly noting the paradox of the nature of the divine, but also implicitly, for example, in noting an attraction and repulsion about certain themes, certain ideas. Um, the desire, the attraction of the goddess, but the desire to speak of God as beyond gendered. So religion is full of paradox, and our speaking of God, therefore, is unavoidably full of paradox too. Just as human responses to the divine can lead to great expressions of humanity and love, as well as the depths of depravity, so too can God be spoken of as paradoxically containing all natures, both creator and destroyer, angry and forgiving, joyful and saddened. In many religious traditions, um, God is definitely not paradoxical. In fact, Yvonne and I share um, a background in evangelical Christianity. And I think in some ways, watching a film about the rapture was when the whole edifice (laughs) of the God that I was up till then worshipping fell apart. And I've shared this story with people before, so I apologise if you've heard it before. But um, the rapture is an idea or the belief that in the end times there will be a point where the righteous, the saved, will be taken up to heaven um, as one, as a body. And every, they will, you know, there's um, the bumper sticker, grab my, grab the steering wheel when I'm taken up. You know, the idea that whatever you're doing, you'll be taken up, yeah? Um, and the, it's, it's, you know, it, it's it's challenging stuff, isn't it? Um, and <laughs> I can't quite think where to go with that now. Anyway, um, so at, at actually a not dissimilar age to Yvonne, I was sat in a living room, um, a very nice house. That was one of the major attractions of this particular group. I seem to remember at the time. <laughs> um, but the. Um, But we were watching this film about the rapture, about why we needed to seek to be saved, why you needed God's grace, why we needed to be forgiven, because otherwise we would be left behind. Um, This was, uh, we watched this video, and everybody sort of sat around in kind of, oh, I'm so unworthy, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got to do something or other, I can't quite remember. And then we went and had dinner in the conservatory and listened to Mozart. It was just bizarre. <laughs> and, but I remember saying, well, you know, I remember thinking and trying, um, trying to say, trying to question this and say, well, how can this God that we're supposed to think of as loving and caring and, 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 you know, and, a, and his father figure, why would a God do something like that? So extra, you know, you know, Mothers will be ripped from children. You know, how, how could a God do that? What? And rather than address that paradox, it was just brushed under the carpet. It was just a... You know, the question couldn't even be heard. The question couldn't even be framed in that context. And I think that's when it starts... One of the points at which it was really challenged for me. I'm sure others of you who had a similar background would have experienced those moments as well. But thinking back about it, it was the inability to cope with the paradox... I probably would have struggled with it anyway. But the fact that the paradox was just not even seen, not even observed. Now, some of you will know I'm particularly interested in the religion of Islam, uh, both personally and spiritually as well as professionally. Um, So I do anthropological studies with Muslims, where I go and talk to them about their beliefs and their practices and try and understand more what it means to be a British Muslim. And I've often noted personally, though I've never actually had cause to write about this in an academic concept, context, the way God is a given. God is just a given. It's not up for debate. Theological debate is fairly uncommon, actually, in Islam. Certainly in the form we see it in the Christian tradition. It's fairly absent. Instead, debates centre on issues of morality and ethics of how to live a good life, how to be a good Muslim. Those are the areas of debate. 
as I said yesterday, God and religion are not coterminous. Religion is, up, is debated. Religion is up for debate. God is accepted. And it's actually a God who's fairly well established through the Quran and uh, through the sayings and practices of the Prophet. In Islam, I'm sure most of you will know, um, Allah is believed to have 99 beautiful names and a further name which is unrevealed. And these names indicate the different ways Allah can be understood. Uh, which reminds me of one of my friends who told me recently that her husband, through most of his childhood, thought God's name was Peter, as in, thanks Peter God. <laughs> uh, they called their youngest child Peter, and I was, hello Peter. Uh, however, in Islam, Allah's 99 beautiful names are rather more poetic, um, and they include things like maker of order, shaper of beauty, forgiving, subduer, giver of all, sustainer, opener, knower of all. And obviously there's 99, 99 of them, which I thought may be a bit too many to read just now. Allah's very rarely described as active beyond the creation and the end of time. Instead, it's angels and the prophets, including Jesus, who act as the messengers of God. Most people are aware that the Quran is, is completely revealed. It's understood as a directly revealed text. It's the direct word of God. But it is revealed through the angel Jibril, who is angel Gabriel. And further, Allah is never depicted... And in general, there's a reluctance in many forms of Islam to depict any living thing. <coughs> the, con the controversy over the Danish cartoons, many other themes to it, but that's a really important idea. The reason that there's this deep suspicion of any, of any depiction is, given, is because of the very real fear of idolatry in a religion that began in a time and in a place where an idolatrous religion led to great social and economic disharmony. So God in Islam is very carefully defined, is allowed to be paradoxical, so is both forgiver and subduer, for example, and is rarely the subject for debate. For, debate. for Unitarians, on the other hand, God is not carefully defined, but entirely undefined, not allowed to be paradoxical, but assumed to be paradoxical, but is also rarely the subject for debate. So despite the fundamental difference between a revealed and a natural religion, arguably we have a very similar outcome in terms of a relative lack of debate about the nature of God. In revealed religion, God is not up for debate because God is so carefully defined in sacred text. In the form of natural religion which Unitarianism has become, God is not up for debate because God is not defined at all. At both extremes, though, we live with paradox. In Islam, the paradoxical nature of Allah is written in, whereas in Unitarianism, God is paradoxical because God has, as a term, become all things or no thing for all people. Now over the course of preparing for these theme talks and in dialogue with the papers prepared by the other speakers, the ideas that were shared, I've evolved quite a lot in my understanding of the way in which Unitarians can have different and paradoxical concepts of God and yet remain theologically silent. We are, of course, non-creedal. We're almost Non we're almost creedal about being non-creedal. <laughs> but, but being non-creedal does not exclude the development of a theology of diversity. Now, I had taken a very hard line in my mind about agnosticism as the only plausible way forward. Now, I need to be clear here that I'm not talking about agnosticism in the woolly sense of, well, I haven't quite made my mind up yet. You know, oh, I'm agnostic. Not really, don't know that sort of idea of agnostic. That's not what I mean by agnostic. I, I, by agnostic, I mean the much more strong sense that you'll find used in philosophical texts about that agnosticism is, it's not possible to know anything about the existence or non-existence of God. It's not possible to know anything 
about the existence or non-existence of God. If it's not possible to know, my thinking went, that it doesn't matter that we all have different plausible theories. However, I think I've changed my mind about this. Agnosticism as a term in this strong philosophical sense was a term which developed in the 19th century around the time of Darwin. Indeed, arguably, Darwin was an agnostic by the end of his life in this strong sense. And Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, is often credited with coming up with the term. So Darwin's bulldog, the man that did all the ferocious arguing on Darwin's part, is believed to be the person who came up with the term. It was a term that made sense in the time of that mid-Victorian crisis of faith that surrounded the development of scientific knowledge and rational method, the time really the real crucible of the development of Unitarianism. It made sense then. Is it still a term that makes sense now? Arguably, the philosophical development, the only logical end point of agnosticism, is atheism. It's certainly not a positive philosophy or theology, after all, the most obvious answer from an atheist will be, of course we don't know, but it's at least the most plausible hypothesis that there is no God. Equally, the believing member, in fact, of any religious tradition, could say the same thing but drop the no. Of course we don't know, but it is at least the most plausible hypothesis that there is a God. So it's kind of a pointless, it becomes a pointless theory. Do you see what I mean? It becomes a pointless theory. So is communal agnosticism an acceptable way forward for Unitarian theology? Um, there's a quote in Stephen Lingwood's uh, book, The Unitarian Life, very useful, doing some theme talks on God, look at the God section. Uh, there's a quote in there from the American UU George N. Marshall. I have no idea who this chap is, I don't know who this person is, it's just somebody quoted in Stephen's book. And George N. Marshall says, Unitarian Universalists tend to be whether they like the word or not, agnostics. We simply do not know for a certainty. We are not anti-God, and few of us would call ourselves atheists, although since we are a non-creedal church, there is nothing to rule out an atheist being a Unitarian Universalist. So apart from the rather loose definition of the term agnostic, as Yvonne very well pointed out with that quote, no believer knows anything for a certainty. That's why they believe or have faith. They float in the sea of faith. I'm not sure it's fair or correct to label Unitarianism as agnostic, communally, or in terms of individual Unitarians. We have many churches, at least in the UK, where reference to God is made in every service, and belief in God is assumed. The Lord's Prayer is used, even if the term God becomes very elastic. We have many individuals who believe wholeheartedly in God and want to use that language and retain that language. They believe. They do not, of course, know. So my response to Yvonne today has been informed both by reflections on the very revealed nature of the Islamic concept of God, which, to be honest, I do find very attractive, <laughs> but also on the philosophical reflections on paradox and agnosticism. What I am left with is a sense that we need to evolve a theology that allows God to be paradoxical. To be both present and absent. To be meaningful and meaningless. I'm also left with a sense that this might not ever be possible. <laughs> At heart, though, I'm also left with the overwhelming sense of how powerful our personal life journey is in our sense of God. I asked yesterday why we still bother with God talk at all, and my sense from the conversations we had was that, in that, was that we cannot escape it because our experience keeps leading us back to it. Our relationship with God, our sense of what God may be or may mean, needs to be open to constant change. As the Muslim may experience God as any of the 99 names, so too we must be open to 99 different experiences or intimations of God. And I hope this afternoon in the theme talk conversations that you might return to some of those ideas. We're going this afternoon in uh, our conversations, we'll have space before we start for people who've not spoken before to speak. 
So we'll try and keep the space as open as we can. So let us now have a few moments of stillness. few moments to let our thoughts settle. Let us sit easy with all the ideas and questions we've heard this morning. Allow perhaps a key question, idea, to slowly bubble up from your soul. <laughs> As we listen to some music, leave when you feel ready. Allow others to sit, sit quietly. And as you go off to coffee, do not be afraid of sharing with someone else the questions and ideas that this morning has provoked. <laughs>